Our second reading is from the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 23, and from 1 Kings, chapter 1. Now these are the last words of David, the oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? Now King David was old and advanced in years, and although they covered him with clothes, he could not get warm. The word of the Lord. If you have a Bible and can take it out or on a phone or whatever and turn to 1 Kings 1, which is the very last verse, in, I think, in my mind, of 2 Samuel. It's, of course, the start to 1 Kings, but we're going to look at the last bit of David there this morning. Let me pray as you're doing that. Dear God, we do thank you for the many, many gifts that we have to be thankful for, and I thank you for these men, women, and children and the blessing they've been to me and my family, especially the last couple of years. The privilege it's been not only to be here to share with them and preach with them, but to let them share Johnny with us and it's also to learn and pick up. There's so many Sundays I've been here and gleaned one thing or another um, from being a part of their community. So thank you for the privilege to be with them again and for your word to us. Open it up in a way that only you can. So we look again at the life of David in your name. Amen. Amen. The last couple of weeks, I've been reading a book that I want to recommend to you called Life Animated. It's by a guy named Ron Suskin. He used to live here in the area, and this is a story. He's written a bunch of other books, but this is a story about his family, his wife and their two sons, particularly their son, Owen, who is autistic. And it's a story of what it's like as a parent to grow up parenting an autistic child. It's a fascinating book. He's a great writer. If you're looking for something to read during Advent that's not just whatever passages Johnny gives you to read, you should read those too. But if you're looking for an extra book to read that shows a surprising level of grace that God uses through surprising means, that's certainly an Advent theme, I'd encourage this book to you. And what you see in it as he describes the life of his son Owen is one of the things autistic people lack is what they call context blindness. They have context blindness, meaning they can be in a situation, a social situation where you and I know it's not good for me to jump up and down and yell and wave my shirt over my head here at church. But for an autistic person, there's another story going on, and they might do something because they're context blind that wouldn't make sense. He tells a great anecdote of they, he, their kids love stories, particularly Disney stories, and he, they're in the public library in D.C., and in one of the Disney stories, someone finds their way into the, the characters' lives through the library shelves and diving and digging their way through books. And so suddenly at one point he looks, he hears his two sons and sees an angry librarian striding down the linoleum of the D.C. Public Library because this youngest son, Owen, is underneath digging through shelves because he's sure that's the way, like he's seen in stories, to the new characters and the new animated way he wants to live. So one of the things that you learn in this book that is so fascinating is how literally Disney movies 
provide a context for this family to communicate and a way for Owen to, to launch out of his autism. So I, it's a, I won't take any more, I won't, I won't recommend it anymore than just say you should get it and read it. It's really, really great. But this idea of context blindness, what Disney does for Owen is provide him a story to understand himself, a way to understand his place in the world, even as an autistic person. And we've been looking at the life of David as a, as for the same reason, because we need stories of God's work in people's lives for us to understand our context in the world. What does it mean for us to live as God's people in the world? We've been looking, of course, at what it meant for David, but also, and really more specifically, what David's life means then in turn for you and me. What's it mean for us? And we've walked through First and Second Samuel, so we've seen a lot of things for David, right? Highs, lows, sins, repentance, consequence. We've seen David as a musician, a friend, a warrior, a poet, a father, a husband, a youth. We started with David as a youth, and now we finish with him as an old man. We've watched David ascending, right? Young David, shepherd David, Goliath David, warrior David. We've watched the pinnacle. A couple weeks ago when I was here, we looked at the pinnacle, 2 Samuel 7, the covenant from God with David. You will always have a son. Your son will be this message, this messianic promise given to the world through David. And then we've seen the pivot, what we called the Absalom cycle, this terrible sense of destruction that's coming because of the choices David made with Bathsheba. And then the last few chapters, if you've been reading along, you've seen the consequences. The, the back half of the second Chapter, second book of Samuel, that whole second set of chapters is about the consequences playing out again and again and again and just how bad it gets for David and his family. We come here again to David in the final part of his life. If we could put that other slide up. Here's this verse. David's an old man. He's finishing his calling. We read at the beginning of 1 Kings, King David was an old and advanced in years, and although they covered him with clothes, he could not get warm again. Here's David descending, David finishing. What's it look like to finish well? What's it look like to finish well with our lives before God? It is hard. Think for a second about anybody you know that you would say that person either finished or is finishing well as they mature and age. If you were going to write a story for David, let's say you had a pen and paper and I said, write for David. The story you write for David will be the story God gives him of what it finishes. What would you want that story to look like? How would you want David's life to finish up? If you know some of the story, you'd say, boy, we'd love to see his kids at peace finally because they certainly haven't been since about the middle of 2 Samuel. Maybe we want to see Israel strong because they've certainly been really strong with David. We'd love that to continue and him to pass that on. Instead of this tribal group of people that David took over, now they're a nation. Maybe you'd love to see a universal acclamation of the next king. There's an there's a easy coronation. Everybody gets behind the next king. This is all good and handed off well. We know what we're doing. Well, if you, if you read through 2 Samuel and into 1 Kings, you'll see that none of those things happen. David has a hard finish. Here again is some context. 
from about chapter 1, 21 to 22, 23, 24 of 2 Kings and, and, or 2 Samuel, and then into 1 Kings, we really see the, the final years of David's life. You can see David is feeling his physical infirmity even before 1 Kings. In chapter 21, they're listing David going out to fight with his men. He's fighting more giants. Well, those are great. We know what David does with giants, right? We were all here for David and Goliath. We remember that. What you read in there is David's fighting a giant, and he's not quite strong enough to fight the giant. So his men have to come and kind of collect him and protect him. And at that point, they say, you can't fight anymore. You're too valuable for us to send out. But it's, again, that little step. David's starting to, to physically get a little weaker. And then we go to chapter 24, and David decides he wants a census. He begins to count Israel. And if you read down into it, what you realize is what he's doing actually is counting his fighting men. He's counting his military, kind of his, his kingly flex. How strong am I still? Because I'm not able to fight Goliath on my own anymore. How strong am I by myself? I'm, I mean, I'm the king, right? How, what do I have? Joab, go out and count the fighting men. I need to know how big and strong my military are. And we see God get really, really angry with David there because who's supposed to be David's true military but Yahweh? At, the, at this, this finishing point, David wants to know he's got the muscle, not God. And then if you keep reading again, you see the family's in uproar. And in this first chapter of Kings, if you go on from this first, you see he's being used by his son, Adonijah. He's going to be used by Bathsheba, who's going to come in to make sure Solomon's on the throne. Solomon, not unlike some of the earlier Old Testament female characters guarding the covenant of God because their husbands are failing, but having to do it in a deceptive way. Don't you remember, David, you said Solomon was going to be king? We have no record in the biblical text that he had said that. It's what God had promised a line on the throne, and Solomon was supposed to be under God's eyes, but Bathsheba has to come in and kind of work David with Nathan, like Nathan coming in and validating it. Oh, don't you remember when you said Solomon was going to be on the throne? It's hard to see David like this. I love David. But this is David passive. This is David unable to keep himself warm. He's out of the action. The former strongman and killer of Goliath is now stripped of vitality. And this is not the finish we wanted for him. Eugene Peterson writes this about David here. When David died, no one at all lamented him. Remember, they have, we have this huge chapter-long lament for Jonathan that David wrote. There's no lament like that in 1 Kings for David. No one lamented him, let alone magnificently. He died in the middle of a family squabble with no hint of either tribute or eulogy. Instead of dying in peace, with his children and wives gathered around him expressing love and gratitude, he was embroiled in a net of intrigue and deceit. How would you like that read? For you at your funeral. How does that story, how does this painful finish for David inform our own finishing well? What's it look like for you and I to continue to love God and finish in a different way? I just want to make three main points toward that end. First, finishing well is spiritual formation. It is discipleship. What I mean by that is none of us get a pass on finishing well. David's story here isn't an anomaly. You and I all have to figure out how we're going to love God in fear and trembling until he takes us to be with him. 
There's no, well, they just got old and just, you know, whatever. We just kind of say, no big deal. Because we see here with David is, it in fact, a very big deal, and the choices he's making continue to infect his generations, just like yours will and mine will. Handing off the reins is very, very hard. It's very, very hard for institutions. It's very, very hard for churches. There are great and nightmare stories about how churches hand off when senior pastors retire. It's just very, very hard for humans. Let's not think about it just as finishing well, but let's call it succession. Okay? A friend of mine gave me the, this main point, this sentence. He said, succession is always spiritual formation. So think about succession this way. We're all going to finish something and move on to something else where we're going to feel exposed a little bit. What's it look like for us when we move that way? So a couple examples. Like if you graduate high school and move on, at some point you stop coming back from homecoming, right? Remember that in high school, the guys who are four or five years out, three years out, wearing a letterman's coat, coming back, and you're looking. Doesn't it feel just a little weird? A couple times, 10-year, 20-year, okay. We make movies about that kind of thing. But if you're coming back every year, that's not finishing very well. Or you're a parent and you hand off your child to school for the first time. What if you show up every day and you kind of over-helicopter the teacher and tell her where she's wrong and make sure your little prince or princess gets all the focus and attention they would get from you from the teacher? Is that, that's not succeeding very well. That's not handing out very well. Some of you have already done this. What if you're the mother or the father or the bride and you're handing her off to somebody? I do a lot of weddings. I know Johnny does too. And I always feel empathy for the father or the bride. I have a little girl and I always look at him and go, I get it. This guy's a jerk. I'm totally with you on that. <laughs> my wife said that to me one time. She said, you know, someday she, my, you're, you're, you know, my daughter will go off and she'll be married to some guy and we need to pray for him. I was like, yeah, but that guy'll be a jerk. He'll be a jerk. I don't care. He could be great, but my next response is he is going to be a jerk. Because I'm going to have to hand off well, right? I'm going to have to succeed well and let them move on to what's next for them. There's a great scene in Father the Bride with Steve Martin, right? Like early in the movie, he and, some of you are nodding because you know what I'm going to say. They're walking out. They've just met this, this fiancé of the daughter, and they're walking out. And Steve, it's cold. Steve Martin says, oh, do you want a coat? She says, no. Fiancé says, well, it's going to be kind of cold. She says, oh, okay, and goes and gets a coat. And in that moment, you can see Steve Martin go, oh. And a way to think about this is this way. I had a, a seminary professor at our orientation in seminary say one of the most profound things I ever heard, and it wasn't in a class. He said, it's so great you are all here and God wants to do work in you and you are all someone somewhere else. You are all someone somewhere else. It's like your first day of college, right? You're all, you're all someone somewhere else and then you showed up at JMU or CNU or UVA and now, none of that really matters anymore. So some, you and I are all someones, but in some God-ordained way, we will all transition out of being that someone and what will we be then? Because that's what David is struggling with. And that's what Israel is struggling with, with David. That inner compulsion you have to show that you are someone. And David, this story, this context, gives us good, a good illustration of what the tensions and temptations are in that discussion. What's it look like to be someone and be transitioning to be someone else? And let something else, someone else. I'm the primary male in my daughter's life, and one day I will no longer be that. 
What will that mean? You see David in chapter 21 struggling for relevance and assertion. I can still fight giants. I'm going with you guys. You can see that discussion happening at headquarters, right? Who's going to tell King David, no, you can't? The guy who killed Goliath. But you know they're all like, fight, fight, fight. How's David? Fight, fight, fight. How's David? Fight, fight. Is David getting killed? Relevance, this, this, this temptation, we've got to be relevant. And then power. The census is all about power. We want to show we were someone and we still have the same power we had. And then, then finally in 1 Kings, you get passivity. David has he's tried power and relevance and those aren't there, and so he's, he's settled on passivity. He's still the king. He's still to be ruling but he's not in 1 Kings. So that's the first point. It is a part of your and my discipleship and spiritual formation. Another way to say that is that it's coming for all of us and not just when we go to be with the Lord in heaven. So if it's important, the second point, then what should we do? What should we note? And the other passage that we read this morning, the, the 2 Samuel 23 passage, gives us a window. David is telling us there what to do, and it's to be faithful. Finishing well, succeeding, meaning succession well, means being faithful to who you are with God now. If you remember First and Second Samuel, First Samuel started with a prayer early on from Hannah. Do you remember that prayer? Way back, First Samuel 2. Hannah, this woman who could not get pregnant, who got pregnant with Samuel, wrote this prayer, and she talked about what it meant to be a leader and what God would do in Israel. And what she said was with the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. He was always the subject of her verbs. The Lord will give strength to his king. The Lord lifts the needy to make them princes. Isn't that, in fact, what we've seen happen in First and Second Samuel? Saul and David, needy people being lifted to be princes and kings. And those kings are called to be faithful. David's prayer stresses this in verse 3. He tells us two different groups who are supposed to be faithful, to lead well, to finish well. The first is you and me. Our faithfulness matters. When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, God dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. Your and my faithfulness, when we rule justly, when we lead justly, faithfully, in the fear of the Lord, that's this great Hebrew phrase, Yerath Yahweh, Yerath Yahweh, then God blesses. This is who David's supposed to be as the king right now. Another Old Testament scholar says about this passage, kingship is not merely a gift of power. Remember that struggle and relevance for power. The responsibilities you and I have is not just for power, it's for concern for well-being. Royal theology at its best summons the kind to attend to issues of justice and righteousness, to the administrations of public power for sake of the weak, powerless, afflicted, and marginal. For David to be leading justly, these are to be the concerns of his heart and what he's supposed to be doing, and he's not doing them as he finishes. For you and I to be leading and succeeding well, we are supposed to be thinking of others. Notice the focus there is not on David or the king. The focus is on those who need the David's power applied on their behalf. And it's a commitment we make 
every day. If you want to be faithful at 75, you learn to be faithful at 45 and 55 and 35 and 25 and 15. It'd be like me saying to Johnny, you know, I want to be really in shape at 75, so I'm going to start when I'm 74 because I think that's probably the best way to do that. And Johnny would look at me and go, that's stupid because he's my friend. It requires commitment and work. It does mean saying, I will be faithful today to the Lord when it's hard because I want to be faithful and finish well. Yesterday, you know, my family, we had spent, my kids and I, since Tuesday, had slowly raked the leaves in our yard off the backyard. We live on a slope. You start at the back. We have a lot of big trees. Neighbors look at us and shake their head because our trees up in, end up in their yard. We start raking our way down. So from Tuesday, a little bit, little bit, little bit, and then yesterday, we'd gotten almost everything out. Faithfully raking the leaves like God's warrior. And then... I was actually outside. This is rare, right? I was outside when the weather changed. Anybody else outside when it went from warm? There's like a 10, 12-minute explosion, right? My street, our street looked like it was snowing leaves. Most of them were the leaves that I had raked into the piles in front of my house. And it went from clean grass to utter pandemonium. And I was standing there. My wife and I were doing things. She went in the house. I was actually holding up a couch we were putting on Craigslist. I'm standing there holding this couch because she's getting something to fix the lake, and I'm watching the leaves, and I just thought, that, that's my life right there. There it is. Not home. <laughs> now, I can decide I'm never raking leaves again. I faithfully raked them one time, and I'm done raking them. I'm sick of them. You could look at my yard right now, and it would not look like I'd raked a thing. Or I can pick up a rake again this week and slowly begin raking them again. Faithfulness matters. Finishing well is a, a commitment to faithfulness. It's not about special skills or gifts or traits or appearance. It's about a commitment to faithfulness, your faithfulness, but then also God's faithfulness. David finishes the first verses that we heard in this prayer this way. For does not my house stand so with God? He described this scene where everything was blooming and blossoming, grass sprouting. He says, does not my house stand with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. Do you sit here maybe this morning and feel like my life is out of order? This is what David's saying to you. Because the covenant that he's claiming there, God made an everlasting covenant with David, is what we celebrate next Sunday with Advent with Jesus. And that covenant drills right down to you and me. So ultimately, my faithfulness first hinges on God's faithfulness. Eugene Peterson again says, the single most characteristic thing about David is God. David believed in God, thought about God, imagined God, addressed God, prayed to God. The largest part of David's existence wasn't David, but God. What if someone said that about us? You know, the most significant thing about Corky is God. What do you know about Larry Medley? Well, that Larry is really striking about God. What about Blair Burns? Blair Burns is amazing because of God. The, the deepest faithfulness that urges us to finish well is your God's commitment to you. Yahweh's commitment to you and me. It's astounding. 
And I was thinking this week, as I think about finishing, like it's finishing for us, it's finishing for David, but for God, it's just continuing, right? God's not like, phew, David's done, I'm done. God's like, oh, I got Solomon now. God's not like, oh, Dean, Dean's done. No, then I've got three kids that I should have parented well and not just given carpools to, right? God's committed to all that. Spiritual formation is a part of your and my life. Faithfulness is the key ingredient to our finishing well. And then finally, what does it look like to finish well? And we'll finish on Christ the King Sunday, which is what we celebrate this Sunday in the church calendar. We'll finish with Jesus. And the passage you heard from Acts. Jesus actually is the opposite of what David is in the passages we've been reading. We don't celebrate David the King Sunday. We celebrate Christ the King Sunday. Because you see in this passage in Acts, Jesus doesn't need to be the someone, does he? Jesus has actually been practicing the other-centered focus of faithfulness his whole life. The Word became flesh to dwell among us. The Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. Those are two descriptions of Jesus in John 1, right off the bat that we hear about who Jesus is. Both of those involve someone other than, than Jesus. The Word of flesh who came here to be celebrated and anointed and have us build really gold-plated castles to. Or the word became flesh to take on the sins of the world. What's astounding about this Acts passage is that David or that Jesus leaves. That's trusting you and me. Isn't it crazy that Jesus spent three years with the disciples, watched them fail, spent several more weeks with over probably 500 people from what we know of the accounts and what Paul says and Luke says, and then left. Would you do that to make sure your plan? I mean, talk about trusting someone to fill out your plan. It's kind of crazy. I mean, I, I lead Church of the Ascension. We think about the Ascension in a unique way because that's the stamp of our church. And I look at that and I go, if Jesus asked me, I go, man, that is a crazy plan. But what Jesus knew is to leave meant the Spirit would come. And what he's going to go do is intercede on your and my behalf at the side of the Father. And he's not about gaining or having power. He's about you having a relationship with God. Notice, if you look at the passage here and the other parts of the end of the Gospels, Jesus is much more interested in you having a relationship with God than he is about you having a relationship with him. It's not about him. Jesus was someone. Jesus was someone in heaven. He's the Son of the Father, the Alpha and the Omega, the Lord of the universe, and he came down to be no one. The summary way to say this is that he died to self. And the poet Wendell Berry says it beautifully this way. He practiced resurrection over and over and over. And if you're sitting here thinking about how can I do that tomorrow, that's the exhortation for you and me to practice resurrection, to practice dying to self because that is in fact spiritual maturity. That's what it looks like. What David is failing at is practicing resurrection. He is passively sitting, letting his family and kingdom fall apart under a wealth of blankets.
David doesn't practice this very well. Jesus lives it out his whole life. He figures out ways to die and live for who is coming next and not to make it about him. True spiritual maturity is always concerned about who's coming after us, not us. That should be the framing thesis for any church meeting that we have. True spiritual maturity is always about us coming after us, not us. So practically this week, particularly as we, many of us go to celebrate Thanksgiving with people, what does it look like to practice resurrection? You're all going to walk into a house where you were someone somewhere else. Some of you might welcome people into your house who are going to feel like they were someone somewhere else and now they're in your house. What does it look like not to be the someone but to make the other people someone? We have a good friend who exhorts, many of you know, Susan Yates, who says it this way. It's not about look at me. It's about there you are. For, for your church and my church to practice resurrection this week, it could be as, just as easy as on Thanksgiving, make sure everybody knew who crosses your threshold that they were someone with you and me. Because you are someone to Jesus. And maybe you'll have the chance to say that. You're someone to me because I'm someone to Jesus. Practically, that might need fighting the need to always be telling your story and not asking questions and listening to other people. It might mean celebrating a food that you don't like to eat because someone else put a lot of time and energy into it. I don't like sweet potatoes. You know what everybody likes to serve on Thanksgiving? Sweet potatoes. I'll probably be eating sweet potatoes Thursday. Not because I like them, but because I believe Jesus wants me to practice resurrection. Maybe... You don't get your dessert. It's not your kind of pie. They're not going to watch your football game. You're going to have to go late. Mom and dad are going to make you do something you don't want to do, etc., etc., etc. What does it look like for you and I to, to live this way? Sadly, David is the, the anti-example in this passage, but it's still a powerful exhortation and we have the perfect example in the Jesus passage in Acts 1. So let's practice resurrection together this week. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you again that you are the king who sent your son to be our king. We celebrate and submit and trust the good King, Jesus, this morning. May his example be the way we live. As you send us from this school later this morning, give us insight and the ability to hear your voice when it prods us this week to practice resurrection in a fresh way. Bless my brothers and sisters. Multiply this church to your great glory, in your holy name, amen.